1: When we take the things we've learned in life and look at challenges in a whole new way, we learn to develop resiliency, which can then be used to promote healing and personal strength. Now, here is Elaine miller Karris.
2: Welcome to Resiliency Within. And I want to let our listeners know that we're also live streaming on Facebook Live at Resiliency Within Facebook page. And I'd like to um, welcome Dr. Brenda K. Ingram to today's show on Martin Luther King Day. I want to, before we I want to say a little bit about um, Dr. Ingram and and what we'll be talking about. But Brenda and I have known each other for many years. When I was first starting the Trauma Resource Institute, I did a training for Peace Over Violence, and she was working there then, and so that's when I we first met. One day we ran into each other in Flint, Michigan that she was consulting with a group of folks that were working to, um, help support the individuals who had been victimized by some of the most extreme institutional racism I've ever seen, which was the the lead poisoning of the water in Flint. And Brenda and I ended up at the same hotel. We're going, what are you doing here? We're both from California. And, uh, then we both were, we've been presenters at the same conference, sitting at the same table and, uh. She's also taken our Community Resiliency Model uh, teacher training. So, Brenda, we have had a lot of intersections, haven't we,
3: over the years? Oh, yes, most definitely. And it's been an honor to just be in your circle, Elaine. It's oh, definitely gosh. been an honor. I've learned so much from you and, and have so appreciated um, our connections well, we, um, and we have many connections out we there. We have in the many
2: connections and thank you for the kind words. But let me tell a little, I want to share a little bit about you that you're a licensed clinical social worker and educator. Currently, um, Brenda is is Clinical Assistant Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at USC Keck School of Medicine, where she provides trauma therapy and teaches trauma, adverse childhood experiences and trauma-informed care. She has an extensive career for over 30 years in education, mental health, gender-based violence, sexual trauma, trauma trauma-informed theory and practice and issues related to oppression and racism. She provides trainings and consultations to higher education institutions, Uh, law enforcement and other organizations. And today's topic is entitled Racism, Resilience and Resistance. What an important topic on Martin Luther King's day. But I wanna say a little bit of what she has stated in the past that when examining the pervasive issue of racism and its profound collective trauma experienced by people of color, it becomes evident that the concept of resilience may require a more nuanced definition and a broader perspective. Within communities of color, resilience can sometimes be perceived negatively when it inclusively emphasizes the psychological strength of individuals inadvertently perpetuating the existing racism status quo, and to truly address healing process from racial trauma for communities of color, resilience must encompass an element of active resistance that she's going to share with us her ideas about, about this, but she has made significant contributions to the field, including co-authoring a chapter in the book titled Black Women and Resilience." Power, Perseverance, and Public Health, the chapter that she wrote is called Resilience, Recovery, and Resistance, Black Women Overcoming Intersectional Complex Trauma. Woo!
3: So, Brenda, welcome. And what's on your mind as we're starting today? Wow. I just think today being uh, Martin Luther King Day in honor of his birthday is, I think, significant for us to have this conversation. I think Dr. King would appreciate us digging into these issues uh, of racism and oppression and really looking at how the structure of our society sort of supports um, this uh, mental health aspects of resilience, but also trauma. And that we need to really address the trauma that comes from Structural oppression, which includes racism, sexism, homophobia, um, so all of these sort of societal issues uh, land on individuals uh, in marginalized communities and and cause them a lot of distress. And so, we really want to talk about how do we help people to heal from that distress in a way that um, in a way that uplifts our well being. Well I
2: love the way that you say that uplifts our well-being because that kind of brings me to the, you know my first question for you which um is the whole concept of active resistance because active resistance can increase our well-being can't it and can you describe a little bit to to, uh, to our audience what that means and give us some um, more information about that
3: Thank you. So active resistance means that we we take action Um, that we take action to resist oppression of any kind. And so it's not enough to just sort of talk about it or to be inwardly focused so much if we are not doing something to change our environment. So we live in a world where there's what we call this bi-directional influences that we influence our uh, environment and our environment influences us. And so we need to be actively engaged in resisting oppression. And so that can show up in a number of ways for individuals. But when we're talking about people of color, people that come from marginalized communities, it becomes what we mean by our resilience. It really becomes a main focal point of how we build resilience in, uh, in folks in, in our communities. So, again, it could look like it does. Well, I could say it doesn't have to be carrying a sign down the middle of the street. It could be educating folks about racism or other types of systemic oppression. It could be uh, engaging in activities that support the homeless. Um, it could be activities in our healthcare systems and making sure that everyone has full access, um, that we support our healthcare providers in really listening to the stories of their patients um, and not just making assumptions based on how they look, but really doing what we call active listening. And so, this act of being active, um, taking uh, behavior and, and doing things um, really leads to well being for all of us. And so, active resistance is a part of resilience. And I think what we have looked at in terms of resilience in the past has been sort of has felt sort of um, stagnant in some ways. Um, Though people need to recognize that resilience is an active process. It is not an end destination. It is constantly changing, moving, developing. And that we have this sort of balance of protective factors and active resistance can be seen as a protective factor, just like connections, cultural identity, intelligence, uh, even a sense of humor mm-hmm. are traits that we talk about in terms of resilience, but active resistance can be another aspect of resilience.
2: Well, so I'm, I'm wondering, you know, I probably asked this question thousands of times to people, you know, what, how would you define resilience? And there probably has been as many answers um, that have been unique and different as there are human beings on the planet. And you know, I've had conversations about this in the past, and I'm just wondering if you can, you're giving us a little bit of an idea of, of how you broadly define resilience, but I'm wondering if you can give us a little bit more of a description about how would you describe resilience?
3: Well, I know that when we talk about, when, when folks in general talk about resistance, they talk about this ability to overcome adversity or trauma and to bounce back from that in a way that makes you better than maybe you were before you encountered um, any kind of traumatizing event. And so, and I think that that does capture when we're talking about resilience, what we're talking about. but again it's it also means that it's a process not just this sort of state of being um and that we really need to look at resilience in a more global way if you will um in that we can be resistant resistant I'm sorry we can be resilient but it is it has multiple components to it and so again you bring your personality traits when we're talking about resilience but you also bring protective factors such as your community connections um when we're talking about adverse childhood experiences or aces that people talk a lot about we people think well if i've had all this adversity in childhood i'm not going to be resilient but in fact you can be resilient and then there are these protective factors that sort of balance out the adversity that you experienced in childhood that contribute to uh, resilience. And so it's important to think that it's not just the destination, but it's the process that well, we go through. And I
2: think, and as you're talking about it, I always try to emphasize because we've had adversity, that's not our destination. Exactly. <laughs> our, our adversity actually may empower us to make changes, not only in our own lives, but others, which I think probably would resonate with your concept of, of active resistance. And, and I think those protective factors, I want to talk a little bit about that because I know that in the work of Christina Bethel, I, I read, um, uh, an article that she was interviewed. and Dr. Christina Bethel, she's um a researcher at John Hopkins. She actually grew up in Los Angeles. But she talks about when she was a kid, and she was she lived in poverty. She lived in a in a housing um, project that um there weren't a lot of resources for kids. But there was a grandmother. and she says they called her, I think they called her Grandma Raccoon. And Grandma mm-hmm. raccoon mm-hmm. would have um, birthday parties every Sunday for all the kids in the housing project whose birthday it was. Now, she just had it every Sunday, whether there was a birthday or not, but she recalls that protective factor as something that was um, wonderful for her when she was growing up, even though there was a lot of oppression and and poverty that she lived in. But when I think about active resistance, I think that probably Grandma Raccoon was one of those people, right, that she was doing something positive for those kids that could mitigate some of the impact of adverse child experiences. So anyway, I just had to bring that. I read that recently. I don't know if you've read that about her, Brenda, but I just thought mm-hmm. that was such a great story of the protective
3: factors that you, you and I have well, both seen. Definitely. I mean, Your spiritual beliefs, all of those things can be seen as part of your active resistance. Um, So again, I think it's important to keep in mind that resiliency looks different for different folks, um, but clearly protective factors are are extremely important in bringing um, to, to, as we say, upping one's uh, resilience. We need those. They, so, they, they, we feed off of those protective factors.
2: So I'm, I'm to ask another question. Cause I think the other thing from some people of color, you know, I've heard things that don't talk to me about resilience. To me, it's just a weapon. It's a weapon that institutionals, institutional folks use to keep me where I am and not listening to me like that active listening that you talked about earlier. I, or I sometimes call it a deep listen to what's happening in my community. So could you talk talk a little bit about, about that, um, that perspective and just give your impressions of that?
3: Well, I think one of the challenges um, that people of color experience is this ongoing adversity, ongoing systemic trauma that has an impact on our mental health and our well-being. And... Folks will see that um, folks that come from marginalized communities do survive. They can even thrive. They do well. Um, they are seen as being resilient. Um, but resilient also does not say that keep on us whatever you will, we will get through it. Um, it still means, again, If and I come from a place of always wanting to make sure we talk about being trauma-informed, in addition to being resilient, is that we need to stop doing harm. Cause a person can only take so much harm before you start to have some breakdown in the system. And resilience can only take you so far. But again, as we start to build more and more resources to communities that will help to build resilience, that will that's what we want to see. We need resilient communities we need resilient families, Uh, we need resilient individuals, we need all of these sort of collective spheres of influence, if you will, that are going to help support our well-being. And so I really like this Adverse Childhood Experiences tree. um, I hope that people are familiar with where the roots of the tree are in the Dirt that is our historical or intergenerational trauma, and that those roots are sucking in those nutrients of oppression and systemic oppression. And that those roots can, again, look like poverty, uh, community violence. And so, if those are the things that are nurturing our communities, how do we how do we make resilient communities? Out of resilient communities come resilient families. And out of resilient families come resilient individuals. And so we need to, ne- we need to look at those structural issues that can be choking those roots, or, or at least not nurturing those roots in a way that makes sense for folks who are growing up in communities. And so we want to build communities. Um, at some point, we have this thing called community trauma. Where there's so many individuals in the community, just like we were talking about in terms of going to Flint, Michigan, where there's been such a long-term disinvestment in that community that people were just like, you know, one more thing heaped on us was the poisoning of the water. And so it, even though folks can't survive that, can they thrive? Um, and what are we doing as institutions to help people to thrive, well, to and build I think those gonna, resilient communities?
2: And Brenna, I think I just want to say a little bit about what happened in Flint, Michigan. The, the governmental officials knew that there was lead poisoning happening with the water and they chose yes. not to tell people. And certain people were told, like certain people were told, oh, they told their children don't drink out of the water fountains. Um, but that wasn't common knowledge for everyone. So there were a lot of children, I mean, everyone in the community um, who didn't have this specific information had lead poisoning. And when we were there, you know, we saw many people who I think when you talk about active resistance, many of the people in Flint, Michigan did exactly that, didn't they? They started being involved in active resistance and and talking truth to power, and saying, this has to change. And there was a pediatrician who was saying, I'm seeing all these kids that have lead poisoning and people didn't want to pay attention to her until they could no longer pay attention to her. So I just think it's really important for people to say, oh, well, that historical trauma is in the past. I hear that sometimes, right? It's not now. But then when that historical trauma are the roots the way you describe it, then those kinds of things grow out of those roots, which is that systemic issue that I think is very alive, (laughs) sadly. But Mm -hmm. I think what you're telling, what you're sharing with us about
3: active resistance, it doesn't have to be the status quo. Exactly. And and it's important, especially when you come from communities that suffer from systemic marginalization and oppression, that we engage in active resistance. And in Flint, that active resistance was like, we're not going to drink that water. We will have bottled water. And long after the government came in and said, oh, your water's fine, and I put fine in quotes, what does that yes, mean? Yes, it wasn't. They continued not to drink that water. And and, and and what was even more interesting is that then the government engaged in almost this sort of uh, threatening behavior that if we will turn your water off if you don't pay your water bill. And people were like, why am I paying a water bill for poison water? Well, once your water got turned off, then Child Protective Services got called that you weren't providing. So there's a lot of things that came in f- through the government. And people wonder why folks don't trust the government that much. Because, <laughs> well, think- again, when you engage in active resistance, there are going to be forces that try and stop you.
2: Yeah, And, and I acts think- that are very yeah. simple. Well, so let me ask you, I have another question to ask you because I think I think do you think it takes courage? I know that, you know, to to talk to speak truth to power, in my own personal opinion, I think it takes a lot of courage. And sometimes it can be easier for some not to say anything at all, anything at all. So when do you kind of cross that bridge and saying, I don't care now? I'm gonna have the courage because that this can't go on.
3: I think what what you see in a lot of communities and with folks is that they just get angry and they just become more passively resistant um, without necessarily talking truth to power in the way that may be recognized in more dominant culture. Because, again, you can suffer the consequences of that. So, you know, even in if, you know, just even looking at the workplace, when you have a supervisor or a manager who is bullying and you step up and say something, you're going to get in trouble. So how do you actively resist that bullying in a way that protects you? And so I think what you find is that people that don't have power have to figure those ways out. And again, it may look passive on the one hand in that. I stop coming to work. I get sick a lot. Um, But these are still forms of resistance to the violence associated with a bullying supervisor or I leave the job. Uh, Again, another act of resistance. And again, it may not always be communicated outwardly because when people are asked why they leave their jobs, a lot of times they'll say it's because they're not paying me enough. Which is an acceptable reason to leave your job as opposed to I have a tyrant of a boss and that's why I'm leaving. And so people figure out how they could be actively resistant in ways that don't damage them. And and it may look kind of passive, but it's still active resisting um, the oppressive system that you were in.
2: Well, so that's an
3: interesting way of looking at it. Yeah,
2: it is an interesting because I mean because it does have an effect when you passively resist something. So, I want to ask you when you talk about trauma informed care, maybe you can talk a little bit more about that. So, when you've been talking about the collective trauma um, that that um, is involved with racism and how it impacts community of 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 color, can you talk a little bit more? About what do you think needs to happen? I mean, in terms of being trauma informed, we know that trauma impacts racism is traumatic. I think we could yes. we would both agree to that. So we know that it impacts communities of color, and then it also has that effect of if you're angry, it affects people in your in your circle, it goes outward. So what, what can we do about this, Brenda? how in your wisdom? of being involved in, in these discussions for so many years? What can we do?
3: Well, well I think easy it's- question. In- Easy question, Brené. Mm-hmm. Easy sure. question. let me fix the world right now. <laughs> yes, okay. Um, I, I think the important piece is to have these dialogues, to have opportunity to start to make sense and give meaning to the trauma and what I've gone through, someone to name it. Um, it's very isolating to experience um, this sort of, violence of trauma um, if you don't talk about it. And so what we want to encourage folks to do is start to identify it, call it out and have conversations about it. That is empowering in and of itself. When you start to identify it, Um, I think trauma-informed care says that let's create these safe and brave spaces For folks to start to have these conversations, because if you don't have the conversation to give meaning to the trauma, it will, again, end in mental distress, which will impact your well-being. And so we need to help folks to externalize what they are experiencing and and therefore to talk about it. Um, I find that when folks sort of internalize it, they become suicidal. Um, and so, what we want to do, and we're seeing, you know, suicide rates go up because people are internalizing the distress and not talking about it. So, we want to identify these um, situations where where you are being traumatized. And so, trauma informed care says we call it we call it out. Um, we have an obligation. Institutions have an obligation to not um, harm folks. And, you know, there's, there's moral trauma where we're put in positions where we have to make decisions that go against our values, that go against who we are. Um, we need to start calling those things out and start really recognizing them. And institutions need to create these safe, brave spaces for folks to start to call out um, these harms and injuries that are associated with traumatizing environments.
2: So Brenda, have you seen any any example of this that you think this organization, this university, this whatever it may be is an example of creating those spaces that we, you may be able to talk to as an example?
3: Um, good question. Um, I'm still looking, <laughs> okay. but I'm I, what I am seeing is we are starting to have more conversations about building these spaces. I have done, uh, I go around to a lot of um, institutions of higher education and start talking about trauma-informed diversity, equity, and inclusion. I call it T-I-D-E-I-B, in belonging. And so that model really brings in to question not just trauma-informed approaches, because everybody can get on the wagon for trauma-informed. But people don't always recognize its connection to issues around equity and diversity, which is which is core to trauma-informed um, approaches. Is that if you don't uh, support equity, if you don't support inclusion, if you don't address oppression, you're going to continue to create trauma. And so um, there are institutions that are having those conversations as we speak that are at least in higher education, as well as in healthcare, um, that are starting to look at that and trying to build those safe and brave spaces. But first we have the conversation. What does it mean? What does it look like? Um, How do I do that? And so we wanna encourage folks to be brave, have courage, as you had mentioned earlier, to start to look at our institutions, but it's not easy because institutions um, are their own life force and they'll do whatever it takes to sustain that life force. Well, and I want to talk more when we come back from
2: our break about the concept. I love that you've added belonging because belonging sounds like all of us. It's not one group over another group. It's how we come together. Like you're saying, how do we build um, allies? How do we bring um, this education information so that we can have this conversation and feel that there is an element I'm going to say safe, safer. I don't know if it's if it can be completely safe, but safer to have the conversation. So we're going to take us, we're going to take a short break from our sponsor, the Trauma Resource Institute. And when we come back, we're going to hear more from, from Dr. Ingram. And I'm going to just remind everyone that the book that you we want you all to go out and buy is called Black Women in Resilience: Power, Perseverance, and Public Health. And that Um, Dr. Ingram's chapter is called Resilience, Recovery, and Resistance, Black Women Overcoming Intersectional Complex Trauma. And we're going to talk more about her chapter when we come back. So this is um, Resiliency Within, and we're going to take a short break.
1: Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts.
0: The Trauma Resource Institute is a nonprofit organization cultivating trauma-informed and resiliency-focused individuals and communities worldwide. Our mission is to take people from despair, to hope. We believe in a world where every child and adult has the capacity to recover from highly stressful and traumatic experiences. Check out iChill, our free app that helps you learn the wellness skills of the community and trauma resiliency models. Go to traumaresourceinstitute.com for more information.
4: Elaine miller Kerris' book, Building Resiliency to Trauma, The Trauma and Community Resiliency Models, is available on Amazon.com. Elaine Miller Karras co founded the Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. The Institute provides trainings on the models Elaine developed the Community Resiliency Model, or CRM, and the Trauma Resiliency Model, or TRM. If you would like more information about the Trauma Resource Institute or how to participate in trainings, visit the Institute's website at traumaresourceinstitute.com. That's traumaresourceinstitute.com. Trauma Resource Institute, build resilience, awaken hope. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness.
2: Welcome back, I'm here with Dr. Brenda Ingram and we're talking uh, about very important issues regarding racism and resiliency. And I wanna remind everyone that her book, um, Women and Resilience, Power, Perseverance and Public Health which is actually a collaboration and partnerships of writing um, will, as to use her words, Brenda, will drop in April but people can go on Amazon right now to pre-order the book. All right. So let's continue this conversation. And I want to talk to you a little bit more now about, we've been talking about trauma-informed practice, and I want to see if there's anything more you'd like to say about that before I go to my next question.
3: Um, I think for trauma-informed, they're they're guiding principles. And those guiding principles include cultural uh, as well as generational um sexual orientation issues all of that is part of trauma informed care transparency and the in for me the number one principle is around uh developing safety and connections that the relationship is what heals because the harm comes generally within uh relationships and so we want to make sure that we uh incorporate belonging and connection to folks, because that is paramount to moving forward, is having these social connections. It is part of being resilient, is utilizing those social connections.
2: So what role do white allies have in supporting resilience and resistance um, within communities of color?
3: I think the role that um, white allies or any allies, it could be um, straight allies, uh, it can be able-bodied allies in any kind of, of way is to acknowledge that this trauma from marginalization and systemic oppression exists. We have to be willing to say racism is out there. It's in us. Uh, it's part of our, our national uh, story. It is who. It is a part of who we are and not to be immobilized by guilt, because um, that doesn't help, but to be actively engaged in resistance. And so that might mean connecting folks, connecting with members of oppressed groups in ways that support their building of their identity or their cultural identity um, that include Um, making sure that we have a collective voice around this, that we always call it out when we see it. So those are just some of the things that allies can do. Um, Again, it's, it's, it's also recognizing that the dominant culture, it rests in the dominant culture, not in the marginalized or minoritized culture, that that culture is trying to survive And what can I do to make that less chromatic?
2: You know, I want to share something with you, Brenda. I think when it's Martin Luther King Day, um, this is connected to being an ally. When I first moved to Claremont um over 30 years ago, I came across um a, a, a man and his wife. His name was John McGuire. his wife was Lillian McGuire. He was the president of Claremont Graduate University. And I was very fortunate to become friends with them. And through the course of knowing them, um They had quite an amazing life and history, and I met many amazing people um, from knowing them. But they also helped me when I was starting the Trauma Resource Institute. Uh, John actually let me use a a, a room at Claremont Graduate University for my first board meeting, and and Lillian McGuire, we called her Billy, they both have now passed. Um, uh, She actually was on my board of directors but unknown to me that that John and, and Billy were, were allies to Martin Luther King. And as the story goes, is that when John was just 19 years old, he was a student at Washington and Lee University in Lexington, Virginia. And he attended a conference at Crozer Theological Seminary in Chester, Pennsylvania, where he met and his roommate was the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Now, mm-hmm. John grew up in the South, the segregated South, and he he changed he changed how he looked he uh, looked at racism and he became an ally and he was a freedom fighter and um i just so appreciate the stories that he would tell me about the that how he became an ally and i think if we we look at this, John was 86 when he died a few years ago. Um, how old would Martin Luther King be? Probably around the same age if he would have lived. Um, but I think it's important to see that there's a history of allies that that um, people have been doing for a long, long time. And maybe we need to shine some more light on that. So I wanted to share that story um, that touches me, You know, like that one degree of se- separation.
3: Yeah, I, I would agree. I w- used to teach at Pacific Oaks College in Pasadena. And Pacific Oaks College um, has a Quaker background. And one of the things that the Quakers did in Pasadena is that because they were white, they were able to buy property. Um, Blacks were not allowed to buy property or things of that nature. There were covenants that kept Black folks out. And one of the things that the Quakers did is that they opened up a school and made sure that Black folks were allowed to come. Um, They basically broke the covenant that said that we were not going to have Black people here in Pasadena. And so those are acts of resistance. Those are are the things that allies can do um, is to step in and say, we're changing the structure here. And so when we talk about even cultural humility, a lot of people get stuck on the first uh, tenet of that model where we just sit and self-reflect on our biases and woe is me kind of stuff. Well, there's two other tenets. And one is to address the power imbalance between yourself and others. So what are you doing about that? And when I meet with um, psychiatric residents We talk about, you know, how do you use your power as a doctor to level the playing field for your patients? Um, How do you use diagnosing to level the playing field? We know that people of color, in particular Black folks, Black males, get much more heavy-duty diagnosing that requires medication that is basically uh, makes you into like a zombie. How do we use our power to diagnosed differently. And so those are very subtle ways that folks are like, oh, I didn't think about it that way. Uh, diagnosing is is a power tactic. Um, if I don't want to hear your truth, I, I I label you crazy. And so there are a lot of things that allies can do. And then the other piece is that what am I doing holistically? It's one thing to be in the room and be very authentic and supporting and and I'm there for you and then go vote for policies and practices that all that sustain a institution of oppression. You can't do all that and say that you are anti-racist. So how are you holding up that stance of being anti-racist. You have to do something. You have to actively change behavior. And so the thing, your story says how actively these freedom fighters engage in changing structure. And if you're not doing that, and again, you don't have to be a freedom fighter. It can be something as subtle as how do you diagnose people? Or what are your operational hours at your job that is make sure that everyone has access? How do you listen differently? All of those are acts of what I call active resistance to oppressive structures. How do you look at your policies that say, you know, you'll be punished if you don't speak English? How are you changing that? So those are things that all of us have the ability to do as allies. Again, doesn't have to be, you know, a rocket ship to Mars or anything like that. It can be something as subtle as changing some of the structures in our organizations.
2: Well, and I guess the other thing, I'm I'm going to just mention this one thing and I don't want to get political, but I'm going to be a little bit political, I guess. And that is about voting rights. If, that is where structural racism is, to me, alive and well. So when you have different legislatures around the country that decide to change the way districts are divided, to put certain groups together who will be more likely to vote to for the power in the uh, the whatever group you represent, that really is not. Um, that's how that lives very well right now in today's society. So when people tell me, oh, that's the past, that's not the present, I really want to emphasize that I think it's really important to be factual about what truly is happening, which is, I want to mention, I didn't know what you just shared with me about the Quakers in Pasadena. I live very close to Pasadena, and yet that's also giving us accurate history, because when we have accurate history, it helps us, I think, to change social policy. If we know that there was something that a foundation was laid years ago that we had no idea about because we were never taught about it. And that's why i you know, we, we've been very involved with the Medgar Evers um, Institute that has been really wanting to, the Medgar and Merrily Evers Institute that has been wanting to lay down the foundations of the accurate truth of the civil rights w- movement, not only the past, but the present. So I just wanna want to emphasize that right now as well, to, you know, take a look at their web- website, the Merrily and Medgar Evers Institute to see the kinds of work that they're doing, because that's one of the organizations that's working towards this. So I have another question. <laughs> I can tell that we could probably have two hours, (laughs) Brenda, in terms of talking about this, the subject or more. But how do we depathologize and decriminalize the reactions of people of of color to racist acts? I'd really be interested in your um, impressions of that.
3: Wow, that's another one of those. Let me change the world questions real quick. Uh, Again, one of the things that I like about the trauma informed lens is that it depathologizes behaviors. Um, it tells us that there's nothing wrong with you, but something happened to you. And so it's important for us to recognize then when you encounter people who have had stuff happen to them uh, over generations, um, over their lifetime, that they're gonna be reacting. Um, they're gonna be engaging in active resistance and it's gonna look different based on who they are, based on what resources they have. And it's important that we not pathologize, that we not label folks as crazy um, or or criminalize them. Um, I'll give you an example. Black women have the highest rate of being criminalized when they engage in self-defense against an abusive partner. They will go to jail or prison way more often than their white counterparts. So we also have to look at how we utilize the criminal justice system to continue to batter uh, minority, minoritized folks. Um, and start to change some of that. I, I, you know, again, not to be political or either way, but just looking at some of the changes that Biden is looking at in terms of how he's decriminalizing marijuana laws or wanting to decriminalize marijuana laws. We know that marijuana laws were were used to put more people of color into prison. And we know that people of color tend to use drugs at a lower rate than their white counterparts, yet they spend more of their time incarcerated as a result of that. So we have to look at those issues. We can't turn our back on how institutions use their power to oppress groups and to keep them in line. Um, They do the same thing with women, you know? Uh, we see that with children who rise up against their abusers, they receive harsher, uh, prison sentences than the parents who abuse them. So this is not an uncommon practice in America in order for institutions to maintain their power. So we need to wake up to that approach and deal with it in a way that makes sense. Um, and not blame the victim. Um, so those are the sort of things that I think we need to start looking at. When someone is being violent, it's usually on a term where they are feeling threatened. Now, maybe they're not feeling threatened in that moment, but they may have a history of threat and they have learned that violence is all they, they can do. So we need to educate people. We need to help groups understand that to build, to build their resistance they have to get an understanding of their oppression. Um, Ferrari, Powell Ferrari is really great in, in teaching about the um, oppressive methods and how we need to educate folks about that. That when people know better, they do better. And so how do we educate people about their, their oppression and help them to build a collective identity that acts as a protective factor against those issues that are going on in terms of oppression.
2: So, Brenna, let me ask you another question. I, I wanna kind of um, go and talk a little bit about the book, Black Women and Resilience. It's a powerful title. And i wonder if you could give us some of the the themes of the book that might help us understand what the book is about that may draw us to going to Amazon today and picking it up.
3: Thank you. Um, Well, Black Women in Resistance is really about looking at all the different aspects of how Black women have survived over the century, if you will, or centuries of oppression and what impact it has had on their well-being, but also how they've overcome it. And so there's chapters in the book that look at um, health status, that look at social equity, Um, uh, as well as inequality um, that tells stories of health disparities uh, in terms of cancer rates. Um, The chapter that um, I co-authored really looks at this issue around intersectional complex trauma. And at the time um, that we wrote this, it was a fairly new concept. And part of what we're trying to convey is that Black women get it from all all ends. Um, And that in order to understand Black women and to help Black women become resilient, we have to recognize that they have an intersectional existence and that where those intersectional or social identities uh, intersect, if you will, um, lots of trauma can also exist at those same places. And that anytime we're going to try and help Black women um, to recover or to heal, we have to look at all of their social identities. Uh, we have to look at where those intersections occur and address all of those intersections. And so the book really is an expansion of all example? the intersections.
2: Can you give some examples of what the intersections might be? What are, what are some of the intersections that, let's say, a Black women so might-
3: here's um. A- Here's an example that I, I, I heard a few years ago, that it is more lethal to be a Black woman than a white woman. It is more lethal to be a poor Black woman than a Black woman. It is more lethal to be a poor trans Black woman than it is to be a poor Black woman. So as you see, as we add these social identities into this individual, their um, ability to survive or even to thrive becomes challenged. And so when you carry an identity as a trans person, they have one of the highest homicide rates are for trans women of color. Most people don't think about that. They also have one of the highest rates of incarceration for nothing, if you will, just being out and about, Um, high rates of homelessness. So those social identities intersect into trauma, which creates more and more health and social disparities. And so black women have more, um, or rather black infants have a higher rate of infant mortality than other ethnic groups uh, in terms of their infant mortality. And studies have tried to eliminate everything, You know, even when you look at class, education, all of those factors, even access to healthcare. And the only thing left on the plate is racism because black women carry the uh, more uh, racism in their bodies that causes them to manufacture cortisol. And cortisol is the stress hormone. And that stress hormone is highly correlated to low infant birth weights as well as premature infant births. Those two aspects lead to greater rates of infant mortality, i.e. Black infant mortality. So Brenda,
2: I think this is a really important ju- juncture in the time that we have left to talk about healing. Healing from racism. How do how do people of color recover from racism? How do we change those cortisol levels? If that is a physiological reaction that happens, we, t- we haven't really talked much about ACEs science, but we know that something happens to the body, to the brain when it experiences this trauma. So some ideas about healing.
3: Well, again, healing is dimensional. I think that's an important piece that we heal at the individual level. We have to heal in our families. We have to heal in our communities. We have to heal as a society. You cannot recover from racism until racism no longer exists. So recovery from racial trauma starts when racism ends. So what is... How are we gonna recover? But what we can do is start the healing process, okay? You can't go into recovery from trauma until the trauma is stopped, but you can heal along the way. So how do you do that? One, you start to build your cultural identity. You start to look for other folks who have your same experiences To build a sort of collective um, understanding of what's going on. You name it. You have to name it. If you are a mental health provider, you have to help people to name it. Okay? You can't be in that room with a client and not talk about racism. If you're not going to talk about racism, please do not work with people of color. That is part of their reality. And we need to help them to find their voice around that and then again we have to recognize that all of these issues have a social historical context okay it didn't just start here it started further back so we need to make sure that we do that and we need to make sure that we help people to take action all right in their own healing so we're going to teach some breathing yoga Some some sort of self healing activities or practices, but we also need to make sure that we help people to connect in their cultural history. And so connect that that belonging uh, that you talked about. That's that belonging that is a key to uh, inoculating against the impact of of oppression. Is that Brenda? We have
2: one minute left for you to say your parting thought to the audience?
3: My parting thought to the audience is take action. Take action, okay. (laughs) Take action to resist uh, any kind of oppression. Everyone, if they take action, they're gonna see a change. And that action is going to look different based on who you are, where you come from, but take action. We know, just in looking at it from a mental health perspective, those who take action do much better than those who do not take action.
2: Okay, and I want to remind people that they can read Black Women and Resilience Power, Perseverance, and Public Health. It is available for pre order on Amazon. Uh, Brenda, it's been such an honor to have you on the show. Keep doing the wonderful work that you're doing. You have, I think, provided a lot of ideas and thoughts for us to ponder. I hope that um, many people listen to this broadcast today. And and try to really contemplate the action items. This that are so important for us to make really um, consequential change. And I want to remind my listeners. I I end with what else is true, and what else is true is that healing is possible. And I and when Brenda talked about you know different wellness strategies, including the community resiliency model, we know we have evidence that it helps to. Um, it improves well-being. It decreases depression and anxiety. Um, we don't have some of the measures yet in terms of cortisol levels, but we will. But that means it probably reduces the cortisol as well. So that means we need to have this kind of integrative plan, individual, yes. community, um, nationwide in order to really heal and create a different, not only present, but future for our children. And with the memory of Martin Luther King, I also just want to embrace, he gave his life for the struggle, and I am honored to to have you on the show, Brenda, for you to bring these, these ideas forward. So thank you.
3: Thank you, Elaine. I really appreciate the opportunity.
2: So this is Elaine Miller-Karis signing off for Resiliency Within. Remember what else is true.